Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast bringing you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Inus. Thanks for joining us as we kick off a new season of our show. Today, we're uncovering insurance champions in the 116th Congress. Our CEO, Chuck Chamnis, talks with Representative Denny Heck about the new makeup of the House Financial Services Committee and the emerging issues the insurance industry will face this session. And a groundbreaking proposal for drone usage, how these changes could increase capabilities for insurers post-disaster. Next week kicks off Insurance Careers Month, how your company can attract young talent by sharing its story. But first, a quick check on the news. The U.S. Department of Transportation has announced proposals to dramatically expand the use of commercial drones in populated areas. For insurers, that means operators would now be allowed to fly drones at night and over people without a waiver if certain conditions are met. The drone must be equipped with anti-collision lighting and the operator must be appropriately trained and tested. Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chao announced this development during last week's Transportation Research Board conference. She says while other technologies like self-driving vehicles are still in the early stages of development, drones are well on their way to mainstream deployment. They're mostly used by hobbyists, by first responders and rescue and recovery efforts, and also to inspect infrastructure. In fact, as of December 14, 2018, there were nearly 1.3 million registered drones in this country and more than 116,000 registered drone operators. This will help communities reap the considerable economic benefits of this growing industry and help our country remain a global technology leader. NAMIC plans to submit comments in response to the proposals. However, due to the government shutdown, proposals have not yet been published in the Federal Register. Once published, the comment period will remain open for 60 days. And as the longest government shutdown in history enters its fifth week, there are few indications of an end in sight. In the latest development, President Trump proposed offering temporary protections to some undocumented immigrants in exchange for $5.7 billion in border security funding. Democrats rejected that plan, stating that it does little to address their immigration concerns. Another vote is scheduled to reopen the government, but critics say it is unlikely to achieve that goal. Separately, the new makeup of Congress brings new questions for the property casualty insurance industry. Nearly half the seats on the House Financial Services Committee will be filled by first-time members. On today's Unscripted, Chuck Chamnis talks with Washington State Democrat Denny Heck, a seasoned member of the committee, about his plans to work with those new members and to continue championing the insurance industry. I'm very happy to be with Congressman Denny Heck today. It's a pleasure to have him to talk about the new Congress, the new role we have in Washington as Democrats become the majority party in the U.S. House for the first time in a few years and what these changes mean for the insurance industry. Congressman Heck uh, represents the 10th District in Washington, uh, Tacoma, Olympia, among other areas, started as a small businessman, went on to build your own business, uh, became a member of the uh, legislature in the Washington State House, 
and then were elected to Congress back in 2012. So you're an industry veteran, and uh, you know everything that's going on in Washington, D.C. right now that we care about, and you're a great friend to our industry. And so, Congressman Heck, thank you, and welcome to our show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, let's get started on the questions, because there is a lot going on out there. Uh, we've already had a couple weeks, um, you know, just this beginning of the year, the nation's capital. First, you know, with the new Congress, how's it feel to be back in the majority uh, as a member of the Democratic Party? Well, I've never been in the majority in the United States Congress before. I have the great privilege to serve in the majority while a state legislator. In fact, I had the honor to be the majority leader while I was in the state house, but that was an awfully long time ago. I've never served in the majority in Congress, so I couldn't tell you what it feels like to be back in the majority. And indeed, because as you and I are recording this, we're still in that government shutdown or that partial government shutdown. And I'm hoping beyond hope, A, that we can get past that and reopen the federal government quickly, and B, that it is anything but the norm. So I hope what I'm experiencing in the first little bit of this session is uh, not what I'm going to experience on an ongoing basis. Well, I'd certainly uh, join you in that hope. Uh, and you're right. It, elected in 2012, you missed the last Democratic majority by a couple of years. So this is a new experience, and uh, I think it'll be a positive one for you. Well, in, in the State House, Chuck, I, I arrived in the majority. My next term I was in the, a tie, believe it or not. My next term I was in the minority. And my fourth term, I was back in the majority as well as the fifth term. And I can tell you that beyond any shadow of doubt, being in the majority is more fun than being in the minority. I can uh, agree with you on that. I think we've talked about this before, but, uh, you know, my wife was general counsel of the House Financial Services Committee way back when. We still live in D.C. before I started with NAMIC in 95. And she actually, this was, and she's a Democrat, so she worked under Chairman Gonzalez back in the day. And when the Republicans took control of Congress in 94, uh, she decided that would be a good time to not be, you know, general counsel of the committee. She looks back on it now and says she was wrong because as a staffer, it's a lot easier to be in the minority uh, and just kind of, um, you know, ask questions, maybe throw a bomb or two and, and kind of engage as a minority does versus what you have to do in the majority, which is everything. So that's from well, a staffer's I, I, view. Having served in the minority here for six years, I'd, I'd like to think that you wouldn't precisely characterize the way I've comported myself during that six years period of time, as you just suggested she might have in the minority, namely ask a few hard questions and throw a bomb or two. Yeah, we no. worked pretty hard at working constructively and across the aisle when we could. Yes, you do. And that is a perfect segue to really my first question about the industry you know, and about the committee, how do you see it? I know it's a little early as we speak. Uh, committee assignments, I don't believe, have quite yet been made. But, you know, in terms of, you know, the new Democrats, new Republicans, for that matter, members of the committee, how do you see it shaping up? And what kind of advice would you have for them as a seasoned member of the committee? So I think there are a couple of real unknown variables at this point that will largely determine kind of the flavor, if not the overall productivity of uh, our session uh, this year and next, as a matter of fact. Uh, the first of which would be how able are the incoming chair, Maxine Waters, and the ranking member, Patrick McHenry, able to kind of forge a constructive working relationship. I'm basically very optimistic in that regard, but it is a key input variable, and it's really important to watch. Uh, do they get off on the right foot? Do they figure out 
where it is they can disagree and where it is that they can agree and work towards solution. And the second input variable, uh, which I think is a lot less ponderable at this point, is what about all those new members on the Democratic, the majority side this time? We went from 26 Democrats to 34 Republicans. We're going to invert that ratio, so there'll now be 34 Democrats, we think. Uh, and of the 26 that are currently there, eight have gone away. So there are only 18 returning incumbent Democrats on the Financial Services Committee. That means we must add 16, and that's almost half. And we don't know who those folks will be yet. We don't know what kind of approach they'll take to all of this. We don't know how much expertise they will have because obviously the Financial Services Committee deals with some pretty complex and arcane matters uh, of law and uh, financial markets, insurance being one of those. And we just don't know who they are and what level of expertise they are going to bring to the table. So we don't really know yet, but I'm excited about it. I'm excited to be in the majority. I'm excited to be on the winning side a little more often than I was over the last six years. Well, I'm sure you will be. And going back to the earlier point about time in the minority, you were not just a question asker and bomb thrower. You were neither of those things. You were a very productive um, part of the committee and a very helpful one from our perspective. I remember when I testified two years ago this month on the covered agreement, you asked many, uh, you made some great points and really uh, in terms of supporting our view that um, some things needed to be changed, confirmed and verified around our state regulation and that we not uh, be forced to conform to a new European model. And further, you know, your legislation uh, in the last Congress, the Duffy Heck uh, HR 4537, you know, really helped put some, uh, um, I would say, guardrails around the uh, particular office that was involved in that uh, dialogue, which is FIO, Federal Insurance Office. So, first, thank you for that. it's part of the reason you've been an AMIC Legislator of the Year. You were with our board last summer, and, and they love to hear from you. But I'd like to you know, know a little more about how you, know, you see some of these same issues, like you know, the old Duffy heck, uh, you know, shaping up in this new Congress, whether we can get some traction there uh, again. Well, I'll go back to my previous remarks, Chuck. It, it's a little bit difficult to answer until we know uh, exactly who that huge new influx of new members is going to be. Um, the fact of the matter is that this is an issue which divides even some of the insurance industry, as you well know, mm-hmm. and you have to kind of, as it were, reorient everyone to the basic rationale behind a state-based regulation and the McCarran-Ferguson Act and why it is that this best serves not just the, not just the industry but the consumer and that we have proof of that. I I love it when people want to argue about why it is that we need to do something more strongly at the federal level to ask them, let's see, we had federal regulation of the financial markets prior to the Great Recession, and we had state-based regulation of the insurance industry prior to the Great Recession. Which one held up better? And the answer is obvious. The insurance industry held up much better uh, through state-based regulation. That served the industry, it served the consumer. But not everybody knows this. Not everybody knows what McCarran-Ferguson is. A lot of these new members don't quite understand in all likelihood, we don't know this yet, uh, how it is the insurance, how it is the insurance works. 
And we're going to have to do a lot of sharing of information and, frankly, educating so that we can get to the point where we can protect state-based regulation and where we can ask hard questions about the federal insurance office and uh, why it is that they ought not to have creeping uh, a creeping empire and right on down the line. Agree. Um, and I think as things, uh, I hope, as we get clarity around the different uh, members of the committee and the agenda for the committee that uh, we'll certainly have uh, more opportunity to get that, uh, particularly the file provision over the finish line. As you point out, uh, there's not unanimous opinion, but I think in terms of the U.S. domestic market, uh, certainly within our members, and we represent you know more than 40% of the U.S. property casualty insurance premium, um, you know, there is strong support for the kind of reforms that you've, um, you know, championed. And we would hope to work with you to, to get them done in this Congress. I will continue to champion them. So other issues we know that are coming up. And actually, I'd like to hear a little about how you see the committee shaping up uh, under Chairman Waters. We're encouraged, um, you know, by several um aspects. Uh, but, you know, as we look at some of the issues that we know will come up, TRIA, Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, uh, is up for reauthorization uh, during this Congress. Flood insurance remains unfinished business. Um, I think both are great targets of opportunity for, uh, for this committee uh, to really do some good work. And I just wondered how you, if you've given thought to how you see those two separate issues uh, in this Congress under our new chairman? I would characterize my forecast as uh, solidly optimistic in both instances. I won't say completely optimistic because there is pushback uh, from the far right, as you know, to both TRIA and flood control. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, there have been hints of pushback from the far left in both of these instances, although that has not manifested itself. I'm probably more optimistic about uh, flood control, at least on the House side, because Chairman Waters uh, is very committed to this issue, very deeply expert in it, with a lot of personal time, effort, and energy invested over a long period of time. Uh, but I'm also optimistic about terrorism risk insurance as well, because I can see the coalition that I think would be uh, very strong that would include an awful lot of members uh, from the Northeast where a lot of this rubber hits the road uh, and a lot of members of the now minority party. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in both cases. Great, uh, as are we. And certainly, uh, you're correct, Chairman Waters has had uh, great experience around this, has had her name on, on two of the most significant um, you know, flood uh, reauthorizations uh, of recent years. And so she'll be well-equipped to help manage this uh, challenge. It's not a partisan issue, really. It's more of a regional issue. And uh, I think that, in some ways, makes it even harder to deal with. Um, but we'll see. We have until, I think, May now for a reauthorization. Yes, we do. And I, for all the reasons you and I have both indicated, I... I think if we apply hard work to our optimism, then, then we'll be successful. What do you see as uh, overall priorities or themes for this Congress? Uh, I think this is probably about our last question we have time for, but uh, how do you see the big picture shaping up? And I don't want to get in, I don't need to, you know, um, highlight categories of issues, but you mentioned one, government shutdown. That's where we are today, unfortunately. 
there's a lot out there, and I just wonder how you see it as uh, a sitting member of the U.S. House. Well, let's not just glide over it. We've just simply got to get the federal government reopened, Chuck. I mean, that's the bottom line. And uh, I, I, I think that's going to happen. I think it's going to happen in the not-too-distant future. But once we get beyond that, I think there are a set of issues that are uh, kind of queued up and ready for action. We, of course, have H.R. 1, the very first bill, which Speaker Pelosi set aside. It's a combination of, of voting rights and ethics reform and campaign finance disclosure, kind of clean up our government, make government a lot cleaner, make sure that everybody's vote gets counted, uh, make sure we bring disclosure to the flow of campaign finance, uh, campaign funds to candidates and ballot propositions. Uh, secondly, there's a strong commitment on the part of the new majority to shore up the Affordable Care Act and protect people with pre-existing conditions, to lowering prescription drug prices, uh, and to do some other things in that regard. Uh, thirdly, I guess I would point to our commitment to working as hard as we can to coming up with a bipartisan infrastructure bill, because I don't have to tell anybody listening to this that our nation's infrastructure is crumbling, uh, maybe a little bit too strong of a term, but in some places that's literally the case. We simply have to do a better job of investing in everything from roads and bridges to mass transit to sewer systems to to uh, to broadband in rural areas and stormwater runoff. Uh, we're behind a lot of the developing countries right now, and if we want to stay competitive on a global basis, and if we want our domestic economy to stay strong, then uh, federal government participation and in infrastructure enhancement we think is very important. So those things, government reform, health care, infrastructure, are the three that come to mind. Well, those are great uh, big-picture issues to end on. Uh, thank you, Congressman Hecht, your time today, your service on the committee, your support of the, really of the policyholders of our member companies. As mutual insurers, they are... Uh, run for the benefit of their policyholders, aligned with policyholders, and um, you know, you've kept that in mind and supported a lot of policies that our members and their policyholders agree with and will help them be better providers of property casualty insurance. So thank you very much. My pleasure, sir. You have a good day. In late December, the American Insurance Association and the Property Casualty Insurers Association formally announced their merger into what now becomes the American Property Casualty Insurance Association. Neil Aldridge, NAMIC's Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs, joins us today to offer some perspective. Neil, the merger wasn't any big surprise, but can you tell us what it means for NAMIC and NAMIC members? Yeah, obviously we did. We were aware of the situation and, and the merger that was likely to happen. For most NAMIC members, this would likely be a non-event uh, in the sense that uh, their trade association me- memberships are pretty stable. Uh, NAMIC, you know, enjoys a 99.5% retention rate among our 1,400 member companies. Um, that's a long-running statistic that we measure that uh, reflects the loyalty that we have in our membership, and we don't expect uh, that to change uh, with the, with the, this new merger and. For, for many uh, of our member companies, it will be business as usual. Um, certainly, we'll have a new trade association partner to work with um, when, it, when it comes to advocacy issues. We generally, NAMIC has a long tradition of working with state trades, and we certainly work with the other national trades on state and federal issues. And there'll be a different partner, uh, may, likely the same people in most uh, circumstances, but uh, we'll continue to work with them on issues where we have common policy goals, Um, and in many ways it will be business as usual for us. 
With only two insurance trade associations now remaining, NAMIC assumes the mantle of the oldest and the largest national property casualty insurance trade association. In other news, NAMIC has launched a new and innovative legislative and regulatory tracking system. It features an upgraded interface that enhances usability and integration of information while maintaining all existing functionality of the former LARIS system. NAMIC's Director of Compliance, Jeff Baker, tells us why the new tracking system was changed. I noticed it needed to be updated before I started working there because I was a, I was an end user of the system before, of the Laris system. Um, I used it uh, when I was general counsel because I had uh, both uh, governmental affairs and um, responsibilities for compliance. So I used the Laris system and I found it to be um, a little bit frustrating and the interface was, um, I felt like could use some improvements and I don't think the interface had been changed in a long time. And I felt like a way to do a better search and get more information and customize the information you see and the information you get and having two different ways to receive that information, both by email and then going back to the actual interface and um, being able to rerun a search. And then again, saving multiple different searches because you know, for I say for user end users, you may be from a compliance perspective or even a government affairs perspective, you know, smaller companies may want to see everything in a certain number of states. Whereas say you may have an end user at a large company, uh, say it's a compliance person who's responsible for cyber cybersecurity compliance, but not other topics, and they want to see cybersecurity compliance type issues in all states. So there are different ways that it can be configured for the same user or different users. Um, so I feel like it was one thing that when I was outside looking at it inside, I thought, you know, there are some things that we could probably do better on this. Jeff recently hosted a webinar to show NAMIC members how the new tracking system works. It's available on demand at NAMIC.org. Talk of an insurance talent crisis is not new. It's been top of mind for the industry for several years. And with the unemployment rate among insurers reported at a staggeringly low 1.2% for last November, it's also a competitive environment, to say the least. Insurance Careers Month kicks off in February. And for the insurance industry to successfully compete for talent, companies must find ways to attract and engage students. Executive Director of Gamma Iota Sigma, Noel Cotispati, offers perspective on what students need to know. Uh, one thing that always resonated with me and that we still hear from industry professionals when they come in to talk to students is the idea that every day is different. Um, you know, you're not in, in, in a significant uh, number of jobs in our industry, you are handling something different every day, whether it's through different clients or uh, developing new products or the marketing piece of it. Um, that there's opportunity to be more than just an underwriter or broker um, in the industry. And we have students in Gamma, you know, 22% of them are something other than risk management uh, or actuarial science. And so there's a big misconception that our students or students who are interested in insurance just want to be those traditional roles. So um, talking about all the different facets and uh, all the different industry groups we work on is really, I think, what convinces a student to want to switch majors and major in insurance or uh, get excited about careers to begin with. 
On February 12th, Gamma Iota Sigma will host its second annual virtual career fair. Last year, more than 700 students participated. If your company is looking to engage the next generation of talent, check out the GIS website to learn how to spread the word that you're hiring. And that's a wrap on this first episode of Insurance Uncovered 2019. If you're a first-time listener, we're delighted to have you join us as we kick off the second year of our podcast. And if you're a past listener, thank you for your continued support. We hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on February 6th. Until then, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a wonderful day.